Hey there, this is Danny Sunshine Bauer from Better Leaders, Better Schools, and the School Leadership Series, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of the individual hosts. Make sure you check out all the other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. And get ready because the learning begins in three, two, one. Again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. I'm your host, Greg Goins, and my special guest today is Grant Lickman, an internationally recognized thought leader in the drive to transform K-12 education. Since 2012, Grant has visited more than 125 schools, published three books, written numerous articles, and has worked with thousands of school and community stakeholders to develop unique and powerful visions and strategies for transforming education with a future-focused model of deeper learning. His most recent book, Moving the Rock, Seven Levers We Can Press to Transform Education, gives educators, parents, administrators, students, and other stakeholders a clear paradigm for how we can transform our schools for kids and meet the challenges of tomorrow. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Grant Lickman, on this episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. I'm excited to have a very special guest today, someone that's out fighting the fight every day to transform the future of K-12 education, Mr. Grant Lickman. How are you, Grant? I'm doing just great, Greg. How about yourself? Good, 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 good. As I see your website and I follow your work, I know you have a new book out, uh, or actually it's been out since 2017, so it's still relatively new, Moving the Rock, Seven Levers We Can Press to Transform Education, and I certainly want to go down that road and talk about that a little bit, but I I think you and I share this passion for reinventing or reimagining education, so kind of walk me through where did that passion come from for for you personally? Well, you know, Greg, I think uh, uh, for, for many of us who are a little bit older, let's just leave it at that, uh, I've had a passion for the transformational nature of education, I think, since I was uh, a kid. Uh, when I look back and uh, I re- realize that almost all of my heroes and role models were teachers and coaches, uh, and I know what education did for me. I was a public school kid. Uh, growing up in California, uh, and though I did not start off uh, my formal uh, work nor my education, uh, my own education uh, in, in involved in education, I never went to ed school or was a teacher. Uh, I've really believed that education is one of those, those things that can transform lives. And so, when I got to a certain point in my life, I'd been in the for-profit world, uh, and I decided I really wanted to explore uh, how we might change uh, schools. Uh, to better prepare our students for what we know is a rapidly evolving world. And, you know, up until probably the early years of this century, most educators and, frankly, a lot of parents and other community stakeholders uh, really didn't think too much about the fact that the world was dramatically changing, but that education had remained largely largely unchanged uh, since the the system of education was designed back in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, So I think a lot of us have known for years and decades that education – 
can do can 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 operate in a different way to prepare our students better for this rapidly changing world. And now we're really, I think, at a tipping point uh, where I think we're past the tipping point actually, where uh, uh, many many uh, schools, districts, and communities of stakeholders are realizing that we have to make some fundamental change. I'm excited to be part of it. And you know, we've been talking about the why now for quite some time, really. And you know, that was kind of the genesis for putting this show together, talking about the why and then uh, the what and hopefully the how. But I've heard you say before that we already understand what the why is all about. And in a real way, we also know the what because you've been out and you've uh, been able to visit a lot of schools. There are some great solutions out there. It's the how that seems to get everyone hung up. Uh, Yeah, that's exactly right, Greg. I think the Y train left the station probably somewhere between 10 and 15 years ago. Unfortunately, not everybody got on that train, but I think uh, there are many, many educators today and parents and students who understand why education should change. I think the what is really coming coming into focus. Uh, Everywhere I go, uh, public schools, private schools, charter schools, uh, wealthy schools, underserved communities, there's a tremendous amount of convergence about the need for uh, learning to be a a deeper learning experience, a more student-centered, a more inquiry-based learning experience. So I think we're getting a real convergence around that. We've swung away from uh, the hardcore, you know, let's prepare kids to to take standardized tests better. I think we fortunately have, have moved away from that. So really the question is, uh, how do schools transform? And schools have not traditionally been organizations that have been terribly uh, wealthy in the DNA of innovation and change. And so I think that's where our real focus is and should be today. You know, Ted Dittersmith uh, has a new book out called What School Could Be. And, and he went on a road trip to all 50 states and visited a lot of schools. And of course, he's still showing his um, you know, critically acclaimed documentary, most likely to succeed. You did something very similar and you actually did it first. Uh, a few years ago, you visited 60 different schools. You have a fantastic TED talk uh, entitled What 60 Schools Can Tell Us. Can you talk about that experience a little bit and uh, what was the big takeaway? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you start with TED. Uh, you know, I think one of the reasons that I took my trip back in 2012 was that uh, Tony Wagner and TED had uh, made their movie about High Tech High. And I really felt that it wasn't just about High Tech High. I thought that there were probably more examples out there that we could find. Uh, and so I got this crazy idea. Uh, begged my wife's forgiveness, uh, took sort of a sabbatical. And in uh, 89 days, I drove around the country by myself in my Prius. I visited 65 schools just to really listen and observe. Uh, ask school leaders, faculty members, students, uh, you know, what do they mean by this term innovation? Uh, what are they doing differently? And what are they doing well to prepare their students for the future that's different from the past? Uh, what's working and what wasn't working? So yeah, my, uh, my, that, that book that be, became hashtag Ed Journey uh, was sort of maybe a prequel to Ted's more recent book. Uh, he's a lot more famous than I am. But uh, I think this is really the takeaway is, is that when people like us get out there, there's, there's so many more examples of what deeper learning looks like, how schools are getting there. uh, And that's been a real tsunami in the last decade. Kind of walk me through what the process looks like. Okay, so you decide you're going to hop in the car and you're going to drive out and you're going to visit schools. Are you calling particular schools, talking to school leadership, saying, hey, can I come get a tour? Can I walk around? How are you received? And, you know, what does that look like if someone actually wanted to do something like that? You know, I think it's actually easier than people think other than the fact that most people have a day job and you can't avoid that. I I knew that I was going to be stepping away from a 
a great job at a, at a great uh, school here in California. Uh, but yes, essentially I emailed, I started, I created my map. I started emailing people who I knew, who I knew were at schools that at least had some hints of uh, making some changes from the traditional school model. Uh, and I said, can I come visit for a few hours or a day? I said, look, I don't want to see your laptop roll out. I don't want to see an iPad program. That's not what innovation is about. I want to see what you think maybe is happening in some classroom or some department or some grade level that really is uh, maybe a, a canary in the coal mine, a harbinger of the future, an exemplar of a different type of learning. And I just want to observe that and, and sort of start to catalog that. And uh, the fact was, is that pretty much everybody uh, almost everybody said yes. I only had two, two schools turn me down, and, and one of them, uh, when they found out I wrote a really nice blog about the competitor across town, was pretty upset that they didn't have me there. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things I found fascinating, and I don't know if you said this in the TED Talk or in, in another interview, but you said as you visited those schools, each school had a different problem. But the, the good thing about that was there were also solutions for every problem. And the school down the road may not have been able to solve that problem, but there was a different problem that they were able to solve. And so as you travel around, everyone is problem solving, but we, maybe we don't share enough of those solutions. Well, you know, I think it's a great point. I just this morning got off a, off a phone call with uh, some school leaders, a uh, school that I'm going to be working with here later this month, and I really impressed on them. One of the great strengths we have in education, perhaps the most singular strength we have in education as opposed to almost every other uh, industry out there, is, is that we mercilessly beg, share, borrow, and steal from each other, and we enjoy doing it. Uh, unless, unless schools are directly competitive with each other, uh, they love to share what they're doing. And uh, so the fact of the matter is the sharing is out there. It's the connectivity that isn't there yet. People think that they have to get on an airplane or go to a, a conference. Uh, when they can just jump on a Twitter chat or have a Zoom chat with some of their friends, I've started holding what I call sandbox events uh, last year where we just had 12, 15, 20, 30 people show up in a Zoom chat to talk about what they were doing, what worked and what didn't work to help each other. So there's a tremendous amount of willingness to share what works out there. We just have to connect beyond uh, the walls of our own classroom, our own school and our own district. You know, I was talking to one of my colleagues recently here in higher ed uh, about K-12 education, and uh, the topic came up about um, why schools, and in particular principals, teachers, et cetera, are so afraid to try new things. And we were talking about ba basic math skills. And, you know, if you have a first grade or second grade classroom, and they're drilling every day on math worksheets. Number one, that's probably not the best way to keep your, your kids engaged in the classroom. But if we really want to think different and, and try a different approach, uh, you know, I, I, I brought up the idea, why not just give every first grader a change box and just use different, uh, different real-life situations? And if a child in first grade can make change for a dollar, I think that's of greater value than being able to do a, a multiplication worksheet. Well, and, and of course, you hit on the real, the real key to all this is so much of uh, great learning has to do with students being engaged and finding relevance in their own learning. We know as educators, we know as human beings, that we learn a lot better if we are intrinsically motivated rather than extrinsically motivated to learn. And so whether it's the idea you came up with or a million other possible ideas out there, uh, the, when I go visit schools, I find teachers very willing to say, yeah, you know, I, yeah, that sounds, that sounds like it might interest my students. I'd, I'd love to do that. The problem is 
those teachers have a day job and they don't have time to think up maybe something new. Uh, what they are willing to do is try it. And so I think the real, uh, one of the real answers here is in just increasing the, what I call the, uh, the density of connections amongst teachers so they can share these good ideas. Uh, I've, I've been saying for years that uh, one of the biggest levers that we have available to us in education that we're not taking advantage of is uh, denser connections of peer-to-peer -peer, uh, re uh, relationships forming where the teacher who says, hey, I've got a great way to totally engage your first grade math students, uh, they're going to be really excited about this, can share that with the teacher who wants something that's more engaging and vice versa. You know, as a, as a, as a human society, we are beyond the point where uh, great ideas flow from uh, one or 10 people out to 10,000 or a million people. We're living in a society where 10,000 people have 10,000 great ideas to be shared with 10,000 others. We see that in all the social networking, uh, the, the, the informal uh, uh, economic uh, situations we have, like the Ubers and the Airbnbs. Uh, education has to be have a much greater uh, affinity to and engagement with that kind of uh, radical connectivity so that we can share what works with each other. And, and, you know, I have to be careful myself, and, and I sometimes I catch myself as we talk about the why and the traditional model and not being able to transform education. We still have some highly innovative teachers. We have some great schools doing some wonderful things. But I think the thing that's most frustrating for me, and I want to get your take on this, is those that are out there trying new things, trying to be more innovative, are often considered the outlier in that school setting. Well, uh, change agents are almost always uh, considered outliers in, in any organization until the change becomes more mainstream. And it's actually, a, that, that, that's part of uh, organizational change is there are going to be people who are willing to try things and people who are more reluctant to do so. Uh, I think that we should, we should never uh, take the, make the assumption that a school needs to be wholly reformatted. Uh, there are great things that schools have been doing in great ways for decades. Uh, some of those are still every bit as valid as they were 10 years ago and 100 years ago. Others of them aren't. And so we have to have organizations that are comfortable with imagining the future in different ways, in uh, running pilots. Some of those pilots are going to be effective. Some are going to fail. Uh, I think I think you know there are a couple things that really do set us apart, uh, set this time apart from perhaps in the past. The fact of the matter is the world is changing too quickly for schools to wait around for the, a 20-year longitudinal study to prove that any new innovation is or is not effective. We just don't have that latitude. The world is changing too quickly. So we have to be willing to take risks that we don't know are going to succeed uh, and then be nimble enough to iterate and adjust and adjust trajectories in the direction that the, that the data and evidence take us. And I've also heard you talk a lot about deeper learning. Can you kind of walk our listeners through what that means to you and how do you apply deeper learning in the classroom setting? Yeah, so, you know, uh, 10 or 15 years ago, I think a lot of uh, folks at the beginning of the century were talking about 21st century skills. And it was a great language to get that conversation started. I think I and others suggested that uh, uh, with respect to skills like creativity, uh, collaboration, communication, uh, for some reason they, they all started with the letter C, it seemed, uh, that there's nothing really 21st century necessarily about those. Uh, 
And about the same time, the, uh, the Hewlett Foundation started funding a lot of work in this and, and started funding what's now become the Deeper Learning Network. And Deeper Learning Network, I, th I think Deeper Learning now has become a, a language that, that, that many people understand is to be something that involves more student ownership of the learning process, students pursuing uh, learning based on their passions, uh, inquiry rather than just regurgitation of answers. Uh, so there's some sort of big meta uh, uh, levels to deeper learning like that. I, I, I actually on my website, uh, uh, grantlickman.com and the resources page, I actually published something I call my deeper learning cheat sheet, which are just a whole series of really tactical classroom level activities that can shift a classroom from being a place of, uh, you know, more traditional sort of uh, rote regurgitative learning to something that we would call deeper learning. Some simple, some of them are as simple as uh, students getting up and moving more often uh, to, to things that are much more involved with student choice, uh, student uh, development of projects and interests. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of stuff there <clears throat> that are easy for uh, teachers to look at and access. Again, the name of the book is Moving the Rock, Seven Levers We Can Press to Transform Education. And we want people to go out and buy the book, certainly. So I don't want you to give too much away. But if you can maybe highlight a few areas, what can readers expect as they kind of dive into those seven levers? Yeah, you know, so I wrote that book, Greg. I, I, I'll be honest. I, I really sort of been thrown down the gauntlet in that book because we do have to get past the why and the and the what and really into the how of 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 of, of transforming education. Uh, there are clearly so many and such an increasing number of schools and districts that are making really significant change in their districts, and others who are saying, "Wait a second, I can't do that." And so I set out this time not having to drive around the country with my Prius, but I think I interviewed you know, 70 or 80 uh, really forward-looking uh, uh, education uh, thought leaders and practitioners for the book and, and ask them, you know, what is happening in your school or district that really is helping or could help to fundamentally transform what I call the school operating system. Uh, and uh, I came up with these seven, and I'm, I think Think there are probably others uh, but for example uh, just having schools in the district or nearby that are real exemplars where people can actually see what more engaged more uh, you know excited uh, energetic uh, students that own their own learning what that actually looks like in a classroom is a big deal uh, parents uh, parents call the superintendent or the principal and say, wow, I've got one student going to that school. They come home excited every night and interested, or they don't even want to leave school. They're so interested. I want my other kids to go to a school like that. So having an exemplar in the community was one of those uh, levers that everybody can, every stakeholder can buy into. Uh, another big lever was, was recognizing that schools are are recognizing that learning really doesn't and shouldn't any longer just take place inside of four walls. The schools that are what I call learning in and with their communities, uh, not, on a day, not on a once in a while field trip, but schools that have partnered with uh, not-for-profits and corporations and, and businesses and government organizations uh, where they are learning uh, out in the community on really authentic projects. This is, this is happening with kids all the way from first and second grade up to juniors and seniors in high school who are doing multi-year internship projects at incubators and accelerators. Uh, I could have written an entire book about just about schools and districts that are really engaging with their communities more. Uh, so there, there are a number of chapters in there about that. And then, and then what I tried to really include were some really tangible, hands-on ways that students, teachers, parents, administrators, business leaders uh, can 
weigh in and press, help press these levers, not in theoretical ways, but in ways that are proven to work, that have been proven to work in districts and schools that look just like yours all around the country. And I know you spend a lot of time out uh, doing public speaking, working with different school districts. Um, what are some of the most common questions you get from those folks? Uh, common questions. Uh, you know, uh, where do I go to find, where do I go to find this out? Where do I go to see what, what, uh, what deeper learning looks like? And, I, and I'll share something is, you know, three or four years ago, I, that discussion would come up and I'd ask people, how many of you are accessing Edutopia? Edutopia from the Lucas Foundation is an incredible resource of free knowledge base all put up there by practicing educators. And now we're seeing more and more uh, folks uh, uh, taking advantage of something like that. Um, you know, what school can I go visit that looks like mine? Well, I can give some help, but I've, I've been, I've visited, I think, 175 schools and districts in the last five or six years. That's a lot, but it's just a small fraction. So uh, I encourage people to get on their website and, and, and put in search questions and connect with other people who are doing things differently in maybe districts that are nearby they can drive to. They don't have to get on an airplane. Um, you know, uh, I hear a lot about, well, we'd love to do this, but the colleges don't, you know, the colleges don't want us to teach any differently. They just want us to crank out kids with uh, high SAT scores or ACT scores and taking a lot of AP classes. Well, there's some real movement going on in that area. And so I encourage people to research what's really going on in college admissions and what they're trying to do. Uh, it's going to take some a while for these transformations to take place. And Colleges and universities are, uh, as you know, uh, don't have all the answers themselves by any means, uh, but there's a lot going on. So I urge people to get out and, and, and poke around what's going on there. So, uh, you know, every school is different. I don't believe there's one cookie uh, cutter answer to every school. I don't believe there's a cookbook that works for every school. I work with some of the most, you know, wealthiest uh, blue blood East Coast boarding schools, and I work with some really underserved public schools. Uh, were that are on 100%, 100% free and reduced lunch. They're very different uh, things. Those, those are very different communities that those schools are serving, and communities have to be very well embedded with and have great empathetic understanding of the needs of their community. And you've also talked a little bit about school leadership, and you know, obviously the, the principal, superintendent, those in leadership positions are, I mean, that's, that's crucial to um, you know, rethinking education and invoking those changes but you talk about the fact that there are some new skills that ed leaders need to be thinking about. Can you share some of those with us? Yeah, Greg, you know, I don't think they're new skills. I think the fact of the matter is that the vast majority of educational uh, people in, the, in positions of educational leadership uh, came up through a fairly traditional uh, pipeline themselves. M many or most were teachers, then they became maybe an assistant principal and a principal, and, and then uh, maybe up into the district office. Many of them uh, never got to take a biz school class. Uh, many of them have not been uh, exposed to the, the time-tested and true uh, skills and methods of organizational change and, and that, ki that kind of organizational leadership. This is not their fault. They're bright people. They're great educators. They, but it, it's the path that they've been on. And so we need to make uh, those sorts of skill sets much more accessible uh, and within the language of schools. That's something I think I've been focusing on really for the last couple of years and I'm working on a new book that's going to be focused almost uh, completely on uh, what, is, what, what does strategy and organizational change 
really mean from the point of view of educational leaders and how to implement that at their schools. These are not new skills. These are time uh, tested and, and, and uh, skills that have proven effective uh, for some hundreds of years or certainly uh, decades. We just have to uh, make those more accessible in, in the language of school leaders. You know, um, I often uh, look at Twitter and uh, various social media, and, and again, there are some highly innovative people doing some wonderful things, and, and that gives me hope for the future. And when I talk to guests like yourself, Ted Dinnersmith, Tony Wagner, you know, I, I'm lifted up thinking that we're moving the right direction. It's just going to be a shame, Grant, if we have the same conversation 20 years from now. You know, uh, let, let me share two uh, ideas with you there. The first time I, I met with David Kelly the, at, from the Stanford D School and founder of IDEO and really sort of the godfather of, of design thinking. He's such a wonderful man. Uh, he said the same thing. He said, Grant, you're so wonderfully optimistic. You, you think this is actually going to work. And I said, you know, <clears throat> I think right now, and this was several years ago, I said, I think there's a really sizable cohort, maybe even 20, 20, 30% of educators who really get it already. And they, 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 they're, they're already moving. Uh, they're already moving the rock. Uh, and I think that there are another probably 50 or 60% who really want to. They don't want to stand up in front of their class and just, you know, give the same lesson over and over again. They want their students to be much more engaging. So I think there's a reason uh, to be optimistic. Uh, but let me say something else. Uh, I'm an old geologist. Uh, my background, I was, a, I was a marine geologist at Stanford for my bachelor's and master's. Uh, we are in a period of evolution, not just in education, but in a lot of things in human society. Uh, but evolution is certainly, or sorry, education is certainly undergoing a period of evolution. And evolution is neither fair nor kind. Uh, during periods of evolution, some species and individuals make it through the evolutionary changes and others don't. Uh, what I'm optimistic about, what I'm hopeful for, is, is that there's an increasing number of uh, schools and leaders and communities that are recognizing they need to get on with this. And those that are uh, very proactive and interested and engaged and are willing to make some changes have a better chance of making it through this evolutionary period. There will be some that don't. There will be. There are schools that are failing and closing their doors. There will continue to be some. Some of those are great schools that, uh, you know, have tried to do the right thing, but because they're not nimble, because they're not recognizing the changes in the world around them, uh, they're not going to make it through this period of evolution. And so, uh, I hope that 20 years from now, uh, if I'm still around, which I, I'm older, probably older than you, I, I may not be, but uh, uh, I, I would hope that we look back and say that a whole lot of schools uh, made it through this evolutionary period and are now serving their students well in ways that fit uh, whatever the conditions are of the world 20 years from now. And, and Grant, you're doing some great things. And again, I appreciate all you're doing out there lead, leading the charge to transform education. So you can find Grant at Grant Lickman on Twitter. You can also visit his website, which has some amazing resources at grantlickman.com. Uh, and Grant, just to kind of give you a closing thought as we wrap up, where can we find the book and what do you have planned for the rest of the fall and the winter? Well, uh, my books are all uh, available online through the major booksellers like Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Uh, so I'd love it if people would uh, go there and take a look at them and maybe uh, share a review, either good or bad, uh, after they read it. Uh, tweet me uh, with comments. I always respond to, to tweets. Uh, 
I've got a, I've had a tremendously full uh, last six months uh, from March through about the end of October now, uh, visiting so many schools, working with so many stakeholders around the country. Uh, after October, I finally get a breather, and I'm going to try to be wrapping up the first draft of my next book, which is going to be about uh, real strategy for uh, both public and private school uh, leaders who are facing these uh, challenges. Uh, and then I've got a few other things I'm working on, too, that I'm sure will come out as time goes forward. So uh, we don't want to let the moss grow underneath us. Well, I know you're a busy guy, and if you get a chance to see Grant in person, a uh, powerful speaker, and uh, be sure to check out the book and certainly follow him uh, on social media. So with that, Grant, thanks for your time. And once again, to all of our loyal listeners for the Reimagined Schools podcast, thanks for being a part of the conversation. And remember, folks, as always, do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids.